0: Well, this morning we are continuing a series we've been in uh, for the past couple of months in the book of Exodus, uh, and we've seen in some really remarkable ways the, the way that the book of Exodus really tells the story that God tells over and over again in the Scriptures, the story of God intervening by His mercy to bring His people out of darkness and into light, out of slavery, into freedom. We've seen uh, over and over again how the Exodus story really is our story how it tells our story of being brought out by Jesus out of a land of sin, slavery, and death and into his inheritance as children of God. And so, this morning we're in Exodus chapter 14. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading this morning starting in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Well, as... uh... As the story proceeds, we get to what is really one of uh, the great stories uh, of the Old Testament. God's delivering of his people through the waters of the Red Sea. You know, uh, we said earlier how much the story of the Exodus sets a motif that's repeated over and over again in the Scriptures. One uh, commentator on the literary structure of the Bible, a man named Northrop Fry, put it this way. He said, the entire story of the Bible... Uh, is just the Exodus told over and over again, right? It's over and over again the story of a redeeming God who sees uh, the plight of his people, comes into history, and brings them out, right? It's the story uh, that God loves to tell. It's the story that helps us to understand what the Bible means when the Bible uses the language of salvation. That to be saved by God is to be like those Israelites brought out of Egypt into the promised land. The great preacher Barbara Taylor Brown, uh, sorry, Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, tells this story of a conversation that she had with a Greek friend of hers. She's talking to this friend uh, and she's talking about the Olympic Games and her Greek friend says, no, no, you cannot call them the Olympic Games. That's the wrong translation of the Greek. They're not games. Uh, That's too light. It's not something you play And Taylor asks, well, what can I call them then, right? If they're not the Olympic Games, what English word can I use? And her friend says, I can't tell you in English. Uh, There's no English equivalent to the word in the Greek. This prompts uh, Taylor later on to reflect on the way that language and language lost affects the way we think about meaning. She realizes that modern people, as she writes, uh, long to have a spiritual experience without using the old words. Words like sin and salvation and grace, right? We and our neighbors long for a genuine spirituality, for some experience of God, and yet these old words, I mean, just think of the words of somebody walking up to you on the street corner and saying, are you saved, right? Those words can seem like an affront to modern ears, right? Am I saved? That indicates that there's something that I need salvation from, that I've gotten myself in some kind of problem. And Brown realizes uh, that we can't discard these old words, that we need to understand them. We need to translate them and understand what they mean in modern language and what they mean for modern people. But we can't just move on from the old words of Scripture. And this story, maybe more than any other story in the Bible, is a story that fleshes out what the Bible means by the word salvation. What it means to be saved is to be like one of these Israelites, rescued by God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, will liken this story to conversion, uh, saying that these Israelites were baptized through the waters into Moses, just as we are baptized into Christ. That this story is a picture of our salvation. And so, it's a picture of what the scriptures say needs to happen for each and every one of us that we need to experience this kind of saving intervention from God. And more than that, that it's what actually needs to happen for the entire world. That the entire world needs to move from slavery and death and sin through the waters and into new life and new creation. And so we want to look at this story and ask really three questions. What are we saved from? Who saves us? And what are we saved for? First, what are we saved from? Well, it's very clear in this story, right, that the the Israelites are saved from the Egyptians, right? That for them, uh, their salvation was very tangible. They were being about to be run down by the most powerful army that the world had seen up to that point. And this army had them pinned where they had the sea on one side and the army of the Egyptians on the other. You know, Egypt, uh, over and over again in the Bible, uh, is, is a referent to more than just Egypt. Right? Of course, it was an actual empire. It was the geopolitical entity of Egypt. But over and over in the scriptures, Egypt is a symbol of death itself. Right? Egypt is a stand-in in the biblical story for the world of death, for the underworld, Over and over again in the Bible, whenever anybody goes to Egypt, the authors tell us uh, that they don't just go to Egypt, they go down to Egypt, and then God brings them up again. That it's viewed uh, poetically as a a journey into the land of death. Egyptians in the ancient world were the leading experts on death, both religiously and scientifically. I mean, think about uh, the bits of Egyptian culture that endure even to this day. Right? If you walk into uh, a history museum, what is it that you see of the Egyptians? It's their preoccupation with death. Right, We know them from their mummies in the hundreds of bad mummy movies that have come as a result. Right, We know them from their pyramids. Right, Other cultures had enduring uh, artifacts that survived, such as palaces and walls and cities. But what endures from Egypt are their tombs. It's the way that they celebrated death. It's the way that they... Uh, invested death with a certain amount of romanticism and magic. It was in the prayers that they prayed for the dead, their processes of dealing with the dead, that Egyptians were experts on death. Their religious book, the enduring uh, religious text that we have from the Egyptians, is their book of the dead, full of uh, their teachings religiously about how to prepare the body and the soul for death. One commentator says that Egyptians were the leading experts on death, religiously as well as scientifically, and so that's why this uh, these words from the Israelites are full with a full of a bitter irony. In verse 11, when they say, "What's wrong? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out here to die in the wilderness?" Right? It's ironic to say in this nation full of graves, in this world full of pyramids and tombs, and uh, in this religion built around death, is it because those graves weren't good enough that God brought us all the way out here into the middle of the wilderness in order to die? And so the, the Israelites are stuck between death and more death. Right? This, is a, this picture is one of absolute chaos. Right, the Egyptians fleeing, the Israelites freeing out of Egypt, run into the Dead Sea, into the Red Sea. It's night, right? The sun is set, and so you have three of the major uh, symbols of death and chaos in the world. You've got them pinned by an army against the sea, that primordial symbol of chaos in the ancient world, and at night, in total darkness. This story journeys from night, from, from, from dusk through night and into a new morning. As it journeys from land through sea into new life on the other side. And this movement from uh, death in the sea towards new life becomes one that over and over again the biblical authors use to describe salvation. Just a couple of them uh, Psalm chapter 18, Psalm 18. The psalmist says, God sent from on high and he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Jonah chapter 2, when the prophet calls out from the belly of the fish, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or the underworld, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. So what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from death itself right, that we don't face a a literal army of the Egyptians. And just uh, as Israel was delivered from the Egyptians, their deliverance didn't stop in that moment. That every human being lives our lives cornered as these Israelites were, cornered in a world of death, where we know our end. We know that death awaits each of us. We're surrounded by a culture that, that points us in the direction of death. Each one of us needs to be saved from a power beyond ourselves, the power of death itself. Paul tells us uh, in Romans that, he, you know, Paul connects in Romans for us the, this deadly triumvirate, sin, slavery, and death. Right, the way he tells the story is, is he says in Romans chapter 5, death spread to all men for all sinned. Right, that sin comes into the world in Adam and Eve, our first parents believed that they could better figure out life apart from God. They chose to order their own lives instead of living with their lives ordered by God. And into that comes slavery. Right? In every one of our lives, we, we sin, we uh, go our own way in life, believing that it's going to lead to some type of freedom. But then we end up becoming chained to what we thought would make us free. Right? This is the story of addiction in every single one of our lives. Right, We get into something believing that it's going to offer life and freedom and joy, and then we end up shackled to it, unable to change our own patterns, our own loves. And this slavery leads to death. So that we are cornered just as those Israelites were. And any honest assessment of our situation leads us to have to recognize that we are surrounded, stuck in our own sin, our own moral weakness and failing, our own unbelief, stuck in a world in which all things tend towards death and unable to get ourselves out of the predicament. Which leads us to the next question, how can we be saved? Who can save us in the midst of this? In verses 13 and 14, give us the answer that God himself saves and only God can save. Moses said to the people, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians to whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Right, so Israel's in this place where they're not strong enough to save themselves, right? Israel doesn't have an army. Uh, They're just people on a journey. They're confronted by an army. Israel can't cross the sea. They didn't leave Egypt with boats, Right? They don't have the, the power or the resources in and of themselves to save themselves. They're not even especially faithful. Right? You might say, oh, well, the power of their faith will set them free. Somehow they'll believe in God enough and God will intervene. But they're not even particularly faithful. At this point, they're freaking out and wanting to go back. So they're not faithful. They're not strong. And yet in the midst of this, I love just this remarkable picture of calm that Moses is. Right, they're, they're clamoring all around him, and they come to Moses, and Moses just says, Fear not. Why are you worried? God himself will fight for you. You who cannot fight for yourself, God will fight for you. This passage brings us to an important aspect if we're going to understand biblical salvation. An important aspect of our salvation is our utter passivity in the midst of it. Right? Salvation isn't something that we do. It's not something that we accomplish. It's not something that we figure out ourselves. It's not that we're uh, able to, to think through the problem on our own and come up with the right faith on our own. It's not that we are able to clean up our own act. It's not that God comes to help us when we finally learn to help ourselves. No, salvation comes to the desperate. And we are utterly passive in our salvation. Look what Moses says, you have only to be silent. Right? The only thing you have to do is to sit back and watch as God saves you. It reminds me of this other great picture of biblical salvation, this other uh, picture of Jesus uh, on the boat with his disciples crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Remember that story when, when Jesus and his disciples set out to go from one side of the sea to another and a storm comes up. On the sea, and it's raging, and all of his disciples think that they're about to die. And Jesus is asleep on the back of the boat. And his disciples come to him and say, Don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus, like Moses in this story, extends his hands and says to the sea, Be still. And it's still. Another great story of God's power over the forces of death and chaos through Jesus. Friends, you'll only understand Christianity to the degree degree that you understand the fact that you contribute nothing to your salvation. Until you understand uh, the reality of the fact that the only thing we bring to the salvation equation is our sin and our need. That like Israel, we're stuck, we're cornered, we're as good as dead. God doesn't send Israel a life raft. Right? He doesn't say, all right, let's see if you can solve your problem. Here's some trees. Let's see if you can fashion a raft across the river. Right? He doesn't come to them uh, and say, if you only believe enough, you'll be saved. Right? If, you, uh, you know, if you click your heels and believe, God's going to get you out of it. No, he says, stand back and watch. Do nothing while I come towards you to save you. They say the greatest danger to a drowning man is when he's trying to save himself so badly, and he thrashes so that he can't be saved by the lifeguards. And in the same way, the greatest obstacle to our own salvation is our determination to save ourselves. It's our utter determination and our own pride and our own stubbornness to believe that we can solve our own problems. Right? That that if we just have, uh, if we study a little more, we'll come to the right answers. If we work a little harder, we'll improve our moral lives. If we we work a little bit harder, we'll free ourselves from our addiction and our destructive patterns. But salvation is found when we finally admit that we can't save ourselves, when we finally admit that our attempt and our belief that we can save ourselves is actually just a symptom of our own sin, right? What does Paul say? He says, all of my righteousness, all of my attempts at being a good enough, right enough, righteous enough person are nothing but filthy rags. Only when we get to that point of admitting that our self-salvation project is doomed do we experience the grace of God, his saving power in our lives. The psalmist says this in Psalm, chapter 40, in Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. Right? Be still. Stop trying to save yourself and watch. Receive. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30, says this, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I love that language. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Right, repentance and rest, what that means is turning from your sin to Christ and then resting there. Resting in His love and in His care. When we do, uh, when we receive new members, uh, or when we uh, baptize new members into this church, one of the vows of membership, when we're talking, when people are professing their faith, if you've done this, you've had a chance to say this, right? We ask, do you sincerely receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Right, that to be a Christian means to receive Christ, but then it means to rest in Him. To rest in Jesus means that we, that we stop obsessing and worrying about our own salvation. Right? I remember uh, growing up in a church environment where I was taught to constantly question whether or not I was actually a believer, whether or not I actually belonged to Jesus. Right? Every uh, crusade that came through town, every preacher that invited, every youth retreat that I was invited on, there was always this, this pressure. right? To, to I see you sitting there will you are you sure you're really a christian will you walk down the aisle will you make sure that you are but friends the invitation of the gospel is to receive jesus and then to rest to receive him and then to chill out to believe that he actually loves you in the way that he says that he loves you that he actually holds on to you in such a way that he won't let you go that yes we wander yes we stumble yes we sin But that is no more, that's a sign of our weakness. It's not a sign of the weakness of God's love or the might of his salvation or the strength of his grip on our lives. We receive Christ and then we rest in him and in his love and in his care. We watch while God fights on our behalf. So much of where our lives go wrong is to believe that we have to fight for ourselves, right? that we have to fight um, to justify ourselves before God, that we have to fight against our own neighbors to get the kind of world that we want, that we have to fight that we're locked in some kind of cultural war, that we have to fight to bring God's kingdom, that we have to fight to be sure of God's love. We need to hear these words of Moses. Stand back and God will fight for you. He's the one that fights the battle. He's the one that defeats the enemy. He's the one who brings us out. And then finally, save for what? Our story ends. The Lord saved Israel that day, verse 30, uh, that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I should think so. That this story ends in his people's worship. That this story ends with them standing on the far shore of the Red Sea, going, can you believe what we just saw? Can you believe what God just did for us and for our lives? This story is a story of movement from death to life, from night to day. They're at the sea at dusk. They go through the sea at night. And then when they land on the other side, verse 26 tells us it's morning. Right? This, is the story, uh, this, this story is full of the language of the creation account. If you remember, creation begins, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the sea, or the deep. And the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And God brought creation out of darkness into light, out of sea into dry land. And so this story Moses is telling us is a new creation. God, the God who created all things, is now recreating all things for his people. God is starting a new creation work. This world fallen as it is into sin, God is starting a new beginning. He's bringing new life into this broken world. The next chapter, what we're going to look at next week, is essentially a chapter of worship. They get to the other side, and Moses breaks into song. A little after that, his Sister Miriam breaks into song. Right? This is the pattern of the scriptures. God delivers, and then his people respond with joy, with gratitude, with worship, with faith. Right? Our faith, as we see here in this story, our faith doesn't get God to intervene. God doesn't intervene because we believe enough. He intervenes and then we celebrate. We celebrate his saving power. And friends, this new creation is something that God himself brings. We don't bring it ourselves. We walk into it. We don't build his kingdom. We receive his kingdom. right? Uh, we are a foretaste of his kingdom. We embody his kingdom, but it's not ours to build. This world is not ours to save. God does it. And he invites us into it with him. He invites us through the sea and into new life, into a new world. Paul tells us that we are the first fruits of a new creation. That we are a sign of God's future intentions for the entire world. That as God brought the Israelites from death into life, as he brought them from slavery into freedom, As he's done that for us in Jesus, he will bring the entire world into glory. He will bring every broken bit of this world into his kingdom. That he will receive praise and honor from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus has done it, that God has done it, that he has fought the battle, defeated the enemy, and restored all things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to set our eyes on your saving power. We confess that so often we are like the Israelites, stuck by the seashore. We feel hemmed in and overwhelmed. We feel dismayed. We feel lost. Lord, in our lostness, we search for our own answers. Uh, We try through our own goodness. We try through our own might. We try through our own faith. Uh, to somehow save ourselves. And yet, Lord, your promise to us is that you are a God who is for us, that you're a God who is with us, that you're a God who fights battles that we can never win, that you're the God who brings us out of a prison that we can never get ourselves out of. Lord Jesus, you are bringing us in this world marked by death, marked by futility, marked by suffering, You are bringing us into the glad glory of your kingdom. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would experience something of your joy as we journey with you. Lord, surely you are the God who makes a way where there is no way. You are the God who goes before us, who leads us by your Spirit. Lord Jesus, we pray um, that you would nurture our faith, help us to set our eyes on you, to walk the way that you go before us, bringing us into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in Town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.